In February of this year, 2013, I was invited to be a speaker at a Bible conference held by Church of the Redeemer in Mesa, Arizona. The topic for the weekend was titled, Theistic Evolution, A Sinful Compromise. During that conference, I gave a series of four lectures. There was far more material than I could ever deal with in just four lectures. Therefore, since that time, I have expanded those initial four lectures into a total of about 14 messages of which you are listening to one of these. I encourage those who are listening to these messages to visit my publishing website at triumphantpublications.com and there you can read a free version transcript of all of these messages. These messages are also being compiled into a, a book that is going to be published and soon released in June of this year, 2013. My website will guide you on how to purchase a hard copy when available. But if you do not choose to purchase a hard version, you can read the transcript of the book by simply going to my website and clicking on the appropriate box titled Theistic Evolution, A Sinful Compromise Transcript. Also, on my website, I have all these audio messages uh, listed that where you can find a link to sermonaudio.com under the general topic, Theistic Evolution, A Sinful Compromise. May the Lord bless you as you listen and or read about this very dangerous view that is gaining ground, unfortunately, among certain churches and institutions. In this particular message, I am going to be dealing with another compromiser by the name of Dr. C. John, or Jack Collins, and I'll probably be two uh, messages dealing with Dr. Collins, uh, because I will be analyzing uh, his book. Uh, so there will be part one, and then there will be part two dealing with Dr. Collins. Dr. Jack Collins is one of the professors of Old Testament at Covenant Seminary, PCA, and his book has stirred up some controversy of late, and that book is titled, Did Adam and Eve Really Exist? Who They Were and Why You Should Care. Collins is equally dangerous in the way that he approaches the issues. His book's title is not intended to deny the historicity of Adam. Collins says that he affirms Adam's historicity. But he does so in such a way as to definitely allow for the possibility of non-traditional views to be considered as acceptable. Of course, the question naturally arises as to what constitutes a traditional view of Adam and Eve's historicity. It definitely does not allow for any form of evolution. The PCA's creation report of the year 2000, approved by the General Assembly in that year, does not allow for any evolutionary views of Adam's origin, even though it allowed some latitude on interpretation of the days of creation, as we will look at in another message. As we shall see, Dr. Collins may not be as openly blatant as Ron Chun, Greg Davidson, or as Peter Inge may be, but his danger is that he gives all these possible scenarios for us to seriously consider. His danger is that while affirming the historicity of Adam, he does so in a way that definitely leaves open some form of evolutionary thought. Well, 
This is simply another way to compromise the truth, but in a more subtle way. As one goes through Collins's 2011 book titled, Did Adam and Eve Really Exist? And as we take a look at his 2000 book, 2003 book titled, Science and Faith, Friends or Foes, one is left in somewhat confusion as to where he really stands. And at one key place, there seems to be a contradiction between the two books. I will point this out later in this lecture. What are some of the problems with Jack Collins? Well, after reading Collins' book and his article that he wrote for Perspectives on Science and Christian Faith, I wrote Covenant Seminary complaining about Dr. Collins' views, stating that I, in good conscience, could not recommend young men to attend Covenant Seminary because of Dr. Collins' views. I stated that I had serious theological issues with Dr. Collins' views. My criticism is based upon Dr. Collins' own perspectives, which I believe to be out of accord with Scripture, the Westminster Standards, and possibly even the stated position of Covenant Seminary on the doctrine of creation. The seminary's stated position on the doctrine of creation is, quote, Covenant Seminary wholeheartedly affirms and teaches the historicity of Adam and Eve. Covenant Seminary and its faculty have always held and will continue to hold to God's special supernatural creation of Adam and Eve as real persons in space-time history. We also affirm the historic hermeneutical principle of receiving and interpreting all Scripture in its literal sense. While there is a range of views on some of the details of that literal sense, such as length of days, all of our faculty affirm both the historicity of Adam and Eve created by a supernatural act of God and a commitment to interpret Genesis 1-11 consistent with its literal sense. End of quote. I shall demonstrate that Dr. Collins's views are not in genuine accord with the above seminary statement or that the seminary statement is worded in such a way so as to allow some form of evolutionary thought to be espoused, just as long as one still affirms that there was an historical Adam and Eve. The key phrase in the seminary statement is, quote, while there is a range of views on some of the details of that literal sense, such as length of days, all of our faculty affirms both the historicity of Adam and Eve, created by a supernatural act of God and a commitment to interpret Genesis 1-11 through consistent with its literal sense. Now, what would an average church member think of the phrase, we also affirm the historical hermeneutical principle of receiving and interpreting all scripture in its literal sense? I have doubts that they would think that a literal interpretation would encompass millions of years for the days of creation, nor would they think that a literal meaning would include organic evolution where man is descended from lower forms of life. One of the problems with the seminary statement is that it appears to allow some, if I may say, wiggle room when it says that there's a range of views of some of the details of that literal sense, such as the length of the creation days. Not only does Dr. Collins refute the notion of a six-day creation, day being a 24-hour period, 
but he will discuss views or scenarios proposed by others that definitely advocate the likely possibility of an evolutionary view of man's common descent from ape-like creatures. Collins, without personally endorsing any of these scenarios, nonetheless mentions them as possibilities just as long as they fall within the scope of what he calls sound thinking. Collins presents these views for consideration just as long as one still affirms an historical atom and does not believe that this evolutionary scheme was solely by natural processes. This is taking the notion of a range of views on some of the details of that literal sense to an extreme that I think contradicts the meaning of a literal interpretation of Adam and Eve's creation. Collins' compromising tendencies are demonstrated immediately in his book's introduction. Collins says uh, in his book, Did Adam and Eve Really Ex- Exist? Here's what he says in his introduction. Quote, Through most of the church's history, Christians, like the Jews from which they sprang, have believed that the, that the biblical Adam and Eve were actual persons from whom all other human beings are descended and whose disobedience to God brought sin into human existence or into human experience. Educated Western Christians today probably do not grant much weight to this historical consensus. After all, they may reason, for much of the church's history, most Christians thought that creation took place in the recent past over the course of six calendar days, and even that the earth was the physical center of the universe. I agree with those who argue that we do not change the basic content of Christianity if we revise these views, even when these revisions are drastic. As I see it, effective revisions are the ones that result from a closer reading of the Bible itself. That is, when after further review, as the football referees say, Many scholars no longer think the Bible teaches such things. Well then, may we not study the Bible more closely and revise the traditional understanding of Adam and Eve as well without threat to the faith? End of quote. Let's consider all the problems with this opening statement from Dr. Collins' book. First, he is implying that most Christians throughout church history were not as adequately informed as educated Western Christians. These supposed educated Western Christians know better than to think that the creation took place in the recent past over a course of six calendar days. Does this mean that the views of John Calvin, James Usher, Matthew Henry, and the Westminster Divines were less educated views compared to Western Christians today? Without casting dispersion on Dr. Collins' education, I would think that the men I just noted were far more educated in the scriptures than Dr. Collins. Second, Dr. Collins' football analogy of further review of biblical data that leads to a revision of interpretation is wholly unacceptable. Collins is advocating what he calls, quote, effective revisions to biblical data that supposedly do not change the fundamental content of Christianity. He does not specify what that fundamental content is, 
I and others consider the doctrine of creation a vital doctrine of the Scripture. And note, why should there be any consideration for revisions of traditional interpretations of the creation account anyway? Collins says that a closer reading of Scripture has produced this revision to the traditional understanding of Adam and Eve's creation. The truth is, Collins's revision is just like what others have said, just as Greg Davidson has said that I dealt with in another message. As we shall see, Western Christians today have the benefit of science. The same criticism that I leveled against Greg Davidson in my previous lecture is the same that I'm leveling against Dr. Collins. He elevates science to a functional equal status with Scripture. However, science is in the driver's seat in terms of dictating what best interpretation of Scripture should be adopted. We look more closely at Scripture and make due revisions because of scientific discoveries. This is very clear in Collins' book, as I, as I shall demonstrate. Third, Collins is advocating that we must study the Bible more closely and revise our traditional understanding of Adam and Eve. I want to stress that Collins is already distancing himself from a traditional understanding of man's creation. How is this in keeping with Covenant Seminary's position statement? It can only be in keeping with it if we allow an incredible amount of latitude in what constitutes, quote, a literal meaning of man's creation. As we shall see, Collins' view of literalness should allow for the distinct possibility of man's evolution from hominid creatures. I think Collins shows his hand when he says, quote, recent advances in biology seem to push us further away from any idea of an original human couple through whom sin and death came into the world. The evolutionary history of mankind shows us that death and struggle have been part of existence on earth from the earliest moments. Most recently, discoveries about the features of human DNA seem to require that the human population has always had at least as many as a thousand members. End of quote. Collins has just admitted an affinity to evolutionary thought, and evolution is forcing us to move away from the idea of mankind starting with only Adam and Eve. So, an acceptable possible revision to the traditional understanding of man's creation is to consider an evolutionary scheme. Now, this is no minor revision. In fact, it advocates a position refuted by the PCA General Assembly Creation Report of 2000. We can see how Jack Collins is allowing science to dictate biblical exegesis when he says in his book, quote, One factor that allows these appeals to the biological sciences to get serious attention from traditionally minded theologians is the work of Francis Collins the Christian biologist who led the Human Genome Project to a successful conclusion. Collins has written about his faith and how it relates to his scientific discipline, advocating a kind of theistic evolution that he calls 
the biologos perspective. College agrees with those biologists who contend that traditional beliefs about Adam and Eve are no longer viable, in the quote. Now, Jack Collins, not to be confused with Francis Collins, or who, who he was just referring to in the previous quote, Jack Collins says that traditionally-minded theologians just cannot ignore the conclusions of Francis Collins that man evolved from ape-like creatures. Francis Collins says that traditional beliefs about Adam and Eve are no longer viable. This infers that men like Calvin, Matthew Henry, the Westminster Divines, and others just do not have modern science available to them. If they had, they too would have revised their views, supposedly. I cannot emphasize strongly enough that the doctrine of sola scriptura is being assaulted. Anytime that we need extraneous sources to provide the proper interpretation of scripture, then we have functionally denied the principle of sola scriptura. Jack Collins expresses the goal or thesis for his book when he states, quote, My goal in this study is to show why I believe we should retain a version of a traditional view in spite of any pressure to abandon it. I intend to argue that the traditional position on Adam and Eve or some variation of it does the best job of accounting for the biblical materials but also for our everyday experience as human beings, in the quote. I trust that you can, uh, you heard the key word that he used, a version of the traditional view. A version where we will see that embraces much of evolutionary thinking. He is trying to hedge against being viewed as one who advocates a non-traditional approach. He wants to say, I advocate a version or some variation of the traditional understanding. Collins's version allows for evolution, as we shall see. Collins states that he is not endorsing any one scenario of man's evolution, but he is seeking to explore how the traditional position might relate to questions of paleoanthropology. I find it very disturbing what Dr. Collins says about the biblical writers, that is, inspired men of Holy Scripture. Collins writes in his book, quote, I recognize that for some, simply establishing that Bible writers thought a certain way is enough to persuade them. That is how biblical authority functions for them. However, I do not assume that approach here. Some may agree that a Bible writer thought a certain way, but disagree that the writer's way of thinking is crucial to the Bible's argument, in which case we need not follow that way of thinking. Others might agree with me about the Bible's writer's thoughts and the place of those thoughts in the argument. I need to examine the arguments of the biblical writers and to see whether their arguments do the best job of explaining the world we all encounter. End of quote. This is inexcusable of Dr. Collins. Since when does he have the right to stand in judgment of inspired writers in determining what they thought? Inspired writers told us what they thought. It's the essence of holding to the doctrine of plenary verbal inspiration. Thoughts are expressed in terms of words. I don't need to guess the meaning, 
But I interpret scripture by scripture as our Westminster standards inform us as the infallible rule of interpretation. It is inexcusable for Collins to say that the biblical arguments of inspired writers need to be examined by me in order to determine if these views are compatible with the world as we all encounter. Man is now the basis of interpreting the Holy Scripture. This is about as explicit as one gets in terms of challenging sola scriptura. Collins states further, quote, I have a lot of respect for the work of science, and I hope you do too. At the same time, I will insist that for a scientific understanding to be good, it must account for the whole range of evidence, including these intuitions we have. End of quote. Collins is guilty of making the same error as other theistic evolutionists. The issue is not science per se, but our worldview of science. Darwin and all other evolutionists think that their understanding of science is the correct understanding. Collins, like others, fails to understand that the reasonings of men are based on their governing presuppositions. It is totally inappropriate to refer to Darwin's view as reflecting scientific views. No, Darwin expressed his personal interpretation of scientific data. Darwin's scientific conclusions are rooted in his religious antipathy to the God of Scripture. As Scripture teaches, depraved men cannot think straight. Their speculations are said to be foolish. Francis Collins' conclusions that a traditional view of Adam and Eve must be jettisoned because of his human genome project are nothing but foolish speculations. And where is Jack Collins coming from with regard to understanding biblical writers in terms of our intuitions? He says that these intuitions are the need to have meaning in life, the desire to be treated well, a sense of morality, the belief that our admirable and unadmirable people in the world, our sense of beauty, and the hope that complex questions do have answers. In light of these institutions, Collins writes, quote, I am persuaded that the Christian faith, and especially the biblical tale of Adam and Eve, actually helps us make sense of these intuitions by affirming them and providing a big story that they fit into, end of quote. Collins prefers to see the biblical account of creation as a way of the biblical authors to convey an overarching worldview. He is not denying the historicity of the events, but he's trying to get a grasp of how the biblical writers were writing to convey their thoughts to surrounding people. Collins says, quote, all of these factors will help us when we ask what a biblical author is saying in his text. We are not limited to the actual words he uses. End of quote. Now, why aren't we limited to the actual words the inspired writers used? This is a dangerous hermeneutical notion that Collins is advocating. If we are not limited to the actual words then we can make the text say whatever we want. We can come up with whatever worldview we think the author intended. 
And if we use our life experiences and intuitions to help us interpret a text, then what stops us from deriving any preferable interpretation? Collins goes on to write, quote, Another development in theological studies is that we pay more attention to the place of one's worldview, and we want to find a way as students of ideology how they use the term. To denote the basic stance towards God, towards others, and the world at persons and communities. A number of theologians have applied this perspective to the Bible. They have argued that the Bible presents us with an overarching worldview shaping story, and not simply with a bunch of edifying stories, end of quote. The whole notion of the value of discerning the worldview of biblical writers, not simply the words that they use, is seen in how Collins thinks of the biblical account of man's origin over against the worldview of the Mesopotamians. Collins states, quote, This leads us to the question of the relationship between history and the worldview story. But to address this question, we must first decide what we mean by the word history. End of quote. This leads Collins to make the following statements. Quote, I will take the term historical account to mean that the author wanted his audience to believe that the events recorded really happened. The conclusion to which this discussion leads us is this. It, as seems likely to me, the Mesopotamian origin and flood stories provide the context against which Genesis 1 and 11 are to be set. They also provide us with clues on how to read this kind of literature. These stories include divine action, symbolism, and imaginative elements. The purpose of these stories is to lay the foundation for a worldview without being taken in a literalistic fashion. We should nevertheless see the story as having what we might call an historical core, though we must be careful in discerning what that is. Genesis aims to tell the story of the beginnings the right way, end of quote. Collins goes on to say, We have reasons to suppose that he had access to some versions of the Mesopotamian stories, but beyond that, God alone knows what else he might have had, end of quote. But here's the problem with Collins' approach. As he says, he doesn't want to be tied to the actual words of the author. But instead, he wants us to discern the worldview of the author. Moreover, the worldview the author draws from neighboring pagan origin stories. Why would an inspired writer of scripture need pagan versions? This whole appeal to discerning a worldview rather than being tied to actual words is leading to Collins's views on human evolution as a possible scenario for interpreting the Genesis account. Collins states, quote, The best way to read the parts of the Bible, then, is in relation to the overarching story by which the individual biblical authors plan to use his human partners to bring blessing to the whole creation, a blessing that requires redemption for all people now that something has gone wrong at the headwaters of mankind, end of quote. Collins 
has provided a way to open up, as I call it, Pandora's theological box, to unleash all kinds of interpretations of Genesis that would fit in with modern scientific views, such as evolutionary scenarios. After all, the writer of Genesis did not really mean to say that there were six 24-hour days. The writer did not intend to say that God literally took dust out of the earth and formed Adam, or that he literally took a rib from Adam and formed Eve. Collins states, quote, The purpose of Genesis 1 through Genesis 2, verse 3, in my understanding, is almost liturgical. That is, it celebrates as a great achievement of God's work of fashioning the world as a suitable place for humans to live, end of quote. Collins goes on to state, quote, It makes no difference for our purposes whether the flood is thought to have killed all mankind outside of Noah and his family, nor does it matter how many generations the genealogies may or may not have skipped, end of quote. Here we see an affinity of denials on the universality of Noah's flood, just like the views of Tim Keller, Ron Tune, the Biologos staff, Greg Davidson, and Peter Enns. Perhaps Collins would come back and say to me, look, I didn't come right out and say it could not be universal. I said it didn't matter. Collins wants a way to open the door for an evolutionary consideration. Regarding our understanding of Genesis, he says, quote, Genesis aims to tell the true story of origins, but it also implies that there are likely to be figurative elements and literary conventions that should make us be very wary of being too literalistic in our reading, end of quote. The following comment from Collins shows the precise nature of his compromise. He writes, quote, The historicity of Adam is assumed in the genealogies of 1 Chronicles and Luke 3.38. Similarly, although the style of telling the story may leave us certain uncertain on the exact details of the process by which Adam's body was formed, and whether the two trees were actual trees, and whether the evil one's actual mouthpiece was a talking snake, we nevertheless can discern that the author intends us, intends us to the disobedience of this couple as the reason for sin in the world. End of quote. Here's the crux of the matter. For Jack Collins, it's not really necessary for us to believe that God literally made Adam from mere dust on the sixth day, which is a 24-hour period. Literal trees or a talking snake are not necessary for us to get the point, he says. All that matters is that the worldview that that from Adam sin came into the world. While Collins may be distancing himself from the conclusions of Ron Chung and Peter Enns, he will still consider the legitimacy of an evolutionary view of man's origin. What about the conferring of God's image upon a hominid, an ape-like creature? I have already mentioned that Collins' hermeneutical approach of interpreting the Genesis account has opened the way for a serious and legitimate way 
to wed evolutionary views with the Genesis account. Collins does recognize that one of the things that makes man unique is that of being made in the image of God, although he is not sure what constitutes that image in its totality. Collins discusses a certain view of Derek Kidner that entails God's bestowal of his image upon a hominid. Collins writes in his book, quote, The question for us is, how did the image come to be bestowed, and how is it transmitted? None of the biblical authors would support us if we imagined this image to be the outcome of natural processes alone. The commentator, Derek Kidner, who allows for a kind of evolutionary scenario leading up to the first human, still insists that the first man must be the result of special bestowal. His conclusion is there is no natural bridge from animal to man, end of quote. Surely captures what the biblical text implies. Some have suggested it is possible that to make the first man, God, use the body of a pre-existing hominid, simply adding a soul to it. We should observe that in view of the embodied image of God in Genesis, if this took place, it involves some divine refurbishing of that body in order for it to work together with the soul to display God's image. End of quote. One should immediately note that Jack Collins is not separating himself from this possibility of how God's image was bestowed on an ape-like precursor to man. It is clearly a synthesis between evolution in special creation in terms of how the image of God is conveyed. Let's get this straight. God takes an existing hominid and refurbishes it. He refurbishes the body of this hominid so it can somehow work together with the soul that God has given it. So, this is supposed to be the biblical Adam. What does physical refurbishing look like. Does this mean that the brutish physique of this hominid has instantaneously been transformed to look like humans today? What about the supposed fossil record of man's missing links? Evolutionists say that there are bones of these transitional links in various stages of man's evolution. Just where does this refurbished hominid that has been given a soul fit into this Fossil record. So Genesis 1, 26 and 27 isn't to be taken literally after all with the plain meaning of the words. Supposedly God allows the evolution of all life forms up to the point of almost being human creatures. At some point, God decides to make a human by adding a soul to this hominid. And this is the Western educated scholarly approach? What is wrong with simply accepting what Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says in a literalistic or plain reading? On the sixth day, an ordinary day, God formed man from the dust, ordinary dust of the earth, and bestowed his image upon him instantaneously. Why is this too hard for men to accept? It's because, quote, science has declared that man descended from lower forms of life, 
Colin does not refute in any way this possible scenario in understanding how God's image was bestowed upon some ape-like creature. I'm sorry, but I consider this kind of exegesis nothing more than an eisegesis, a compromising synthesis with the world. I go back to Collins' opening paragraph in his book's introduction. He says, Western educated Christians today know better than the uneducated Christians of the past 1,800 years, which include, by the way, some of the theological giants of the faith. The problem is this. Some Christians don't want to be perceived by the world as uneducated simpletons. However, the attitude should be, who cares what the world thinks? As Romans 3 verse 4 says, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. And as I've mentioned in another lecture, there are some Western highly educated Christians, such as Ken Ham and Dwayne Gish, to name a few who cogently argue for a literal or plain reading of Genesis. But what about the relationship of science to Scripture? In Collins' chapter 5 of his book, Can Science Help Us Pinpoint Adam and Eve, the, the title of that chapter, Collins discusses the meaning of the term concordism. This word conveys the effort to find some kind of agreement between two possible conflicting accounts, science and the Bible. Having discussed various attempts of Christians attempting this harmonization, Collins prefers to think of the Genesis account as teaching a particular worldview without getting bogged down in details. In his lack of concern for particular details in the, in the text, such as the meaning of kinds in Genesis 1, Collins says, quote, As a matter of fact, a close inspection shows us that it is probably a mistake to read Genesis 1 as talking about the kinds of plants and animals in a taxonomic sense, or even implying that the kinds are fixed barriers to evolution. The point of Genesis 1 is not to teach these facts, but instead to put these already known facts into proper, a proper worldview context. The world works this way because it is as the good creation of a good and magnificent creator. End of quote. This is where Jack Collins' hermeneutic leads him. We don't really need to concern ourselves with the quote, words of Scripture, per se, but with the understanding of the worldview being conveyed by the biblical writer. Notice that Collins brings, us, brings in the viability of an evolutionary perspective by alluding to the fact that when Genesis 1 refers to kinds, we should not assume from the biblical text that this means that the kinds are fixed. The very premise of Darwinism is that there is no fixity to species. Life forms are capable of transmutation over thousands of generations. As long as we understand the general worldview of the biblical writer, says Collins, we don't need to be restricted by the details. Of course, for Collins, this opens wide the door to consider the plausibility of an evolutionary scheme. I would have us, 
I would have this question for Dr. Collins. Where does an evolutionary scheme fit into the overall worldview of the biblical writer? In one sense, Collins has said that an ancient Israelite reading Genesis 1 would know very well that if he wanted wheat or barley, then he would use wheat and barley seeds. If he wanted sheep, he bred them from other sheep. Apparently, for modern man, in his reading of Genesis 1, now that we have the benefit of the illuminating contributions of Darwin, we can understand the text from an evolutionary perspective. Collins asks a very important question. Quote, May one legitimately use the Bible to inform scientific theorizing? One straightforward reply is to say, this will depend on the subject matter of the theory. The Bible will not speak one way or the other about relativistic mechanics, solid-state physics, or the circulatory system. Its focus is on the events, and on the worldview, it's telling of those events. Convey. This worldview certainly provides a grounding for a version of optimism, though that scientific study will uncover true things in the quote. Collins gives an example of how scientific study uncovers true things when he gives a footnote to the above quote. The footnote reads, quote, It was proper, therefore, for George Lemaitre, the Belgian priest who did much to found Big Bang cosmology, to insist that his theory sprang from his equations, not from Genesis. If the theory be discarded, that need not falsify Genesis. On the other hand, the theory provides many people with a useful scenario for envisioning the creation event, end of quote. I, unlike Collins, do not find optimism in certain scientific theories explaining biblical texts in such a way that it conforms to evolutionary models. The scientific theory of the Big Bang is absurd. It hardly is an adequate explanation of God creating the universe by the word of his power, as expressed in Psalm 148, verses 1 through 5. Collins applies his worldview hermeneutic in seeking to understand certain features of Genesis 1 through 4, particularly in who was Cain's wife and whether we can set a time frame for the creation of Adam and Eve. He writes, quote, Another exegetical consideration is whether the, the descriptions of Genesis 1 through 4 and the genealogy of Genesis 5 enable us to locate Adam and Eve in our historical time frame. Likewise, the genealogies of this kind of literature do not claim to name every person in the line of descent and thus are not aimed at providing detailed chronological information. Further, I know of no way to ascertain what size gaps these genealogies allow. It does not appear that they are intended to tell us what kind of time period they are describing. There is, therefore, good reason to steer away from the idea that Genesis 4 through 5 makes any kind of claim about the dates of the events and people involved, end of quote. I'm surprised that Dr. Collins is not more forthright in commenting on the nature of the genealogical accounts found in Genesis 5 and in Genesis 11. I know that he must be aware, as an Old Testament professor, 
that there are precise time periods given in these genealogies. This is how the 17th century theologian Bishop Usher derived his date from the creation, a date that the Westminster divines agreed with, and how modern Old Testament scholar Floyd Nolan Jones agrees with Bishop Usher's chronology. How clearer can it get from Genesis 5 and 11 when all one has to do is add up the numbers from the age of a person when he begat a son and when he died and that son's age when he fathered a son and the age of the father when he died? I demonstrated in another lecture that the biblical chronology is intact and sequential with no omissions of representative heads. The only thing that Dr. Collins is correct on is that it is true that not all the persons in a genealogy are listed. But this does not mean that there are gaps in the genealogies. It doesn't matter if certain people are left out. If I give the precise time frame for the ages of those representative family heads, the, West, the Westminster Divines had no problem with counting and with understanding that the biblical chronologies were accurate and complete. Is Dr. Collins a greater scholar? than these Puritans, which include Samuel Rutherford and Thomas Goodwin. The problem is not with the words of Scripture. The problem is with men like Collins and others who just cannot ex accept the straightforward meaning of the text because of geological and evolutionary views. Again, with these compromisers, the driving force is not sound biblical exegesis, but that of bringing God's holy, precious, and inerrant word into strict compliance with modern scientific views. It is not that Genesis 5 and 11 are unclear in giving a full genealogical time frame for various representative heads. It's just that modern Christians are not willing to accept the clear meaning of Scripture. Before the advent of Darwinism, there was not this common belief that there were time gaps in the genealogies. As noted earlier, Dr. Collins has presuppositionally committed himself to the tyranny of the views of modern evolutionary scientists. He thinks revisions need to be made in our understanding of Scripture based upon new data provided for us by these scientists. Again, this is how he begins his book with discussing why we need effective revisions. Modern Western educated Christians have the benefit of science that most Christians did not have in the history of the church, he says. What about death before the fall of man? Jack Collins, just like all other theistic evolutionists I have discussed in my lectures, is forced into a theological position of insisting that there must have been physical death, at least in the animal world, prior to Adam and Eve's fall into sin. Once a person rejects an understanding that the days of creation are not ordinary 24-hour periods, but instead millions of years, and once he accepts any view of evolution, then he must maintain that violence and death and the struggle for survival of the fittest was commonplace millions of years before man came upon the scene. Collins writes, quote, there is also the question of death. Does Genesis 3 imply that there was no death before Adam and Eve sinned? I have already stated in section 3a that the death threat of Genesis 2.17 should be taken to refer to what we call 
spiritual death. But Genesis 3, 9, 19 says that in this end, the human being will return to the ground. Does this imply that there was no physical death before this event? The question arises from two motives. First, the likelihood that the earth is far older than 6,000 years, based on geology in the fossil record, implies that animals had been dying long before human beings came on the scene. Second, some Christians suppose that the first true human beings had ancestors, which would then imply that there had been death in the human family before this event. Therefore, Genesis is not at all suggesting that no other animals had ever died before this point. Further, if God made the first humans from pre-existing animals, we still should suppose that the lives and self-awareness of these first humans were different from those of their animal predecessors. Therefore, the fossils that record the bodily deaths of animals provide no difficulty for taking Genesis 3 at its own face value. Neither are we forced, if we think that Adam and Eve had animal predecessors, to believe that bodily death was the natural end for them in the flow. I will continue to reiterate that it is not sound biblical exegesis driving the theistic evolutionists' understanding of Scripture, but the so-called findings of science. Collins openly states that the biblical text in Genesis 3.19 can be interpreted in light of geological and evolutionary factors. Collins assumes the earth is older than 6,000 years. Why? Because geology and the fossil records say so. He admits under this assumption that death had been commonplace for who knows how long before man's emergence. And... Collins says that there are Christians who truly believe that the first true humans did have ancestors, which would imply that death was commonplace in man's hominid ancestor. Collins is confusing when he says, Neither are we forced, if we think that Adam and Eve had animal predecessors, to believe that bodily death was the natural end for them. This makes no sense from an evolutionary perspective. Of course death was a natural end for these hominids. How could it be viewed otherwise? As we shall see, several theistic evolutionists acknowledge that there was likely a population of thousands of these hominid creatures from which God chose a male and female to be the recipients of his image, thereby making them then fully human. It is evident that Collins argues that exegetically, we can fit Genesis 3.19 and following into a modern scientific scenario. Again, again, Collins's faulty hermeneutic that allows for science to be a legitimate guide to proper exegesis leads him to believe that physical death preceded the fall. This is why Collins and most theistic evolutionists want to refer to the curse of the fall as primarily a spiritual death. However, Collins is of the opinion that physical death was also part of the curse of the fall. Once we allow for the likelihood of man's evolution, we are faced with all kinds of hurdles to overcome in seeking to reconcile man's evolution with the biblical account of creation. Just how is the physical death of all these hominid creatures essentially different from the physical death of the supposed chosen hominid now named Adam? Collins is trying somehow to understand Genesis 3.19 
where it says man will return to the dust because of his sin, but he wants to allow for the possibility that this curse of physical death doesn't mean that death didn't exist before man's fall. As the Westminster Confession encourages us to interpret Scripture within scripture, with Scripture, one of the key aspects of applying that hermeneutical principle is to let Scripture be its own interpreter of its words in context. As I noted in another lecture, words can shift in their meaning according to the context, but the immediate context will demonstrate how that word is used. And if there's a question as to the meaning of a word, then looking at other texts with the same word can provide possible help. In saying that words can have different meanings in different contexts does not negate in the least that words are still very important in understanding God's inspired scripture. This principle is vastly different from what Collins has said. As noted earlier, Collins has stated that we are not limited by the actual words that the inspired writer used, but we must strive to understand the writer's intentions, meaning that we must strive to understand the writer's worldview. This is how Collins can impose a possible evolutionary scenario upon biblical texts. I have noted in other chapters that some theistic evolutionists have said that the meaning of God forming man of dust from the ground obviously means that God used the process of evolution in his creative act. In other words, the meaning of the words of dust from the ground is not to be viewed as actual dust, but it means that God simply allowed the materials of the earth to have some latent ability to evolve into all life forms, particularly man. If one wanted to have an accurate idea of the meaning of dust in Genesis 2-7, then observing its use in Genesis 3-19 is helpful, if we let Scripture interpret Scripture. The text clearly indicates that part of the curse due to man's fall into sin is that he will die, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust ye shall return, says the Scripture. If actual words convey the intended meaning of the inspired writer, then we have no problem in understanding the text. However, if we take liberty to impose upon a text any interpretation of preference, then we can make Genesis 3.19 mean whatever we want it to mean. Adopting Collins' hermeneutical principle is exactly what theistic evolutionist Greg Davidson does in his book that I've already addressed in another lecture. Davidson believes that the real meaning of the, quote, sons of God marrying the, quote, daughters of men is that of subhuman Neanderthals having sexual human with human females resulting in a strange hybrid species referred to us in Scripture as the Nephilim. As I mentioned in that lecture, this kind of interpretation is, is ludicrous. But it makes complete sense to one theistic evolutionist because the actual words of the text are not limiting. All that Davidson did in his absurd interpretation is to apply Jack Collins's sociolinguistics principle that Collins mentions in his book. I'm not implying that Davidson was aware of Collins's sociolinguistic interpretive principle, but that his interpretation of Genesis 6-2 is an example. Collins gives examples of this, when he writes, quote, 
For example, by saying the sentence, there is a car coming down the street. You might be telling your son not to try crossing the street. Or you might be telling your friend across the street to hold onto the frisbee until the car passes. Usually if someone at a dinner table says, is there any salt at the table? He's not asking for information. He's making a polite request that someone bring the salt shaker to the table, end of quote. One wonders, then, what kind of worldview the writer of Genesis was trying to convey to those in his time if the actual words used are not the key to interpreting a passage. Surely those thousands of years ago in reading Genesis 2 and 3 had no idea of organic evolution. What was being conveyed to these readers when Genesis 2, 7 says God formed man from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being? Is the Israelites simply to understand that God made man somehow, but the process is irrelevant? By the way, if we apply a faithful hermeneutic to the text, we realize that man did not become a living being until God breathed life into his nostrils. How is God refurbishing an existing subhuman hominid with a soul and the adequate interpretation of this text? According to these theistic evolutionists, these hominids are already alive but have somehow been given a soul. But a faithful rendering of the text demonstrates that at one point man was not living and then instantaneously becomes a living being when God breathed into his nostrils. Collins has no problem with understanding physical death as existing for millions of years prior to man's fall into sin. The driving force in understanding scripture for the supposed educated Western Christian, is geology and the fossil record. If we adopt Collins's hermeneutical principle, then forget the actual words of Scripture. All-knowing geology dictates the real meaning of Scripture. And, seeing the likelihood that Adam had a pre-existing hominid ancestry, then death must have been around. How are Dr. Collins' views to be scrutinized in light of Romans 8.20-22? Romans 8.20-22 states, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. End of the reading of God's precious word. This text clearly refutes Collins and all other theistic evolutionists with the notion that there was death in the natural world before Adam's sin. I've gone into great detail to discuss this in the previous lecture of what Matthew Henry uh, John Calvin and William Hendrickson said about Romans 8. Because of Adam's sin, the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. The creation as we know it today is not normal. It's a slave to corruption, and it will not be delivered until Jesus comes again with God's children when they are glorified. By the way, there's no mystery the Westminster Larger Catechism question and answer Number 28, the question asks, what are the punishments of sin in this world? At the tail end of the answer, it says, quote, as the curse of God upon the creatures for our sakes and all other evils that befall us in our bodies, names, estates, 
relations and employments together with death itself. There you see it. Together with death itself. The well-known Reformed commentators John Murray and Matthew Henry take great exception to the notion that death preceded Adam's fall into sin. Murray comments on verse 21, he says, quote, The bondage of corruption is the bondage which consists in corruption, and, since it is not ethical in character, it must be taken in the sense of the decay and death apparent even in non-rational creatures, end of quote. Matthew Henry says on verse 21, quote, When man sinned, the ground was cursed for man's sake, and with all the creatures, especially of this lower world, where our acquaintance lies, become subject to that curse, become mutable and mortal. Under the bondage of corruption, verse 21, there is an impurity, deformity, and infirmity which, with which the creature has contracted by the fall of man. The creation is sullied and stained. Much of the beauty of the world, gone. This is an enmity of one creature to another. They are all subject to continual alteration and decay of individuals, liable to the strokes of God's judgments upon man. End of quote. Pertaining to God's curse upon the land due to man's sin, Matthew Henry says, quote, The ground or earth is here put for the whole visible creation, which by the sin of man is made subject to vanity. The several parts of it, being not so serviceable to man's comfort and happiness as they were designed to be when they were made, and would have been if he had not sinned. God gave the earth to the children of men, designing it to be comfortable dwelling to them. But sin has altered the property of it. It is now cursed for man's sin. That is, it is a dishonorable habitation. End of quote. I'm sorry, Dr. Collins. Sound exegesis always trumps science. This ends part one of my analysis of the compromiser, Jack Collins. I'm not through reviewing his book. And in part two of Collins' lecture, I will deal with what Jack Collins says concerning possible evolutionary scenarios for man's formation. That will be the subject matter of part two.